I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to the Old Testament. We're going to go to the prophet Haggai. The prophet Haggai. I want to thank uh, Pastor for the privilege. And uh, one of the funny ironies is that uh, along the way, so it's been several months ago that we met with deacons and gave testimony and all of that. And then it's been like every time we're coming to the time to vote people in, we were out of town or something else happened. So uh, anyway, but we are delighted to be here and thank the Lord for... Uh, uh, pastor and his ministry of the word has certainly been blessed into that. And then in God's providence, we work together in his day job, and uh, we actually are sharing an office together. So, uh, so I have to be nice, real nice, anyway. But uh, uh, but it's good. And then there we have a few of the students who I teach. One of the classes I teach is systematic theology. Uh, this semester is being offered on a Thursday night, so that means they get two hours on Thursday night. So a few of them are here, and then I'm just started teaching them. Uh, Sunday school, so a few of them are going to be really tired of my voice by the time the day is over, but uh, anyway, uh, but it is a privilege to serve the Lord, and it's a privilege to be uh, able to open up the Word with you. Uh, to, uh, to one of our minor prophets, a few years back, I, uh, I've been involved in training national pastors, one of the passions God's put in my heart, part of God just burned my heart to come and uh, teach in the seminary as well, just uh, trying to equip pastors for future generation, uh, but I was asked on one of my trips to uh, China to teach the prophets in nine days. So that's a big ask. So if you, especially when you get into all the major prophets and how long they are, as well as the minor. So uh, what I ended up doing was actually I did a whole series through the minor prophets, interacted with some of the key passages in the major prophets to try and give them a sweep of all the prophetic literature in nine days. Now, don't worry, you go about eight to 10 hours a day. So you get a lot of, uh, but having that much material ready to go every day, uh, was, uh, was a, a particular challenge. But I really uh, fell in love with Minor Prophets and, and Haggai, just giving some little backdrop to where we're going. Um, but uh, Babylon is defeated, uh, or Babylon, should say, defeats Egypt in 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar then marches his troops to Jerusalem. Jehoiakim is then forced to submit. Uh, and then we have the first wave of captives that are sent back to Babylon, which included Daniel. Uh, so Jeremiah's ministry actually begun before this, so back in 627. So if you just keep adding it up, Jeremiah had, you know, he has 22 years of ministry warning what's coming, the Babylonian captivity is coming. Uh, there's no wonder he is the reaping prophet, because for 22 years he's warning a nation that will not hear the warning, that continues to harden their heart, continues to, to go their own ways. Uh, and then he continues the ministry after the first wave in 605 all the way to 586 B.C. when the actual destruction of uh, Jerusalem took place. So his ministry goes all the way through there with a ministry of warning and telling of judgment and yet seeing no repentance on the part of the nation. Ezekiel's prophetic ministry begins in 593. Uh, so after the first wave of captivity, uh, but before the destruction of Jerusalem, which he prophesies of, but then he also prophesies of a coming restoration, including the rebuilding of a new temple, that there will be a temple, which he talks about the one in the kingdom, but he speaks forward, so he speaks of a time of restoration uh, during his ministry. Then you also have Daniel, obviously taken in the wave of captivity in 605. Daniel's ministry is extensive. I mean, his goes over 70 years, Jeremiah's over 60, and Daniel then is uh, in Babylon and he is there through the defeat of the Babylonians by the Medes and the Persians and goes all the way into the third year of Cyrus, the Mede. So Cyrus would be the one who actually gives the decree for rebuilding. 
And so Daniel's ministry comes, and that really brings us up then into the time uh, where we're going to come to where Haggai's ministry actually takes place. So Cyrus, after defeating Babylon, less than a year later, he issues a decree uh, to allow them to rebuild, to actually return to Jerusalem, begin the rebuilding process. Part of the amazing thing of that decree is that it is prophesied in Isaiah 44. Uh, some 150 years before this happened, God named Cyrus by name. His servant, Cyrus. And that's obviously an unusual thing. God's calling this pagan king, his servant, to do his will. That's one of those great lessons when you look out at all the things happening in our world and our culture. One of the things we're going to get confronted with is one of the favorite titles of God by the minor prophets, confronting the people in the fact that, God, that Yahweh is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies. He's the all-powerful one. It's not kings. It's not nations. It's not rulers. And one of the great illustrations, here's this pagan king comes to power and he actually is there. He is going to do what God intends for him to do. And he is actually part of accomplishing all of God's purposes. So these pagan kings that want to threaten the world and everything else that they think or whoever you think is, in, you know, pulling the strings behind the uh, puppet. Uh, never mind, I won't go there politically. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, whoever you think is pulling the strings uh, in, is to accomplish their will, which then gets off as Leah, could be alarming in one sense. But here's the thing. The Lord is the Lord of hosts. It's his world. It is going to work his way. It is going to accomplish all of his purposes. And in the midst of all this disobedience goes on for all of this time, we have the Jews now returning. There was prophesied the 70 years would end. It has come to an end. They're now offered to return. 50,000 go back under Zerubbabel's leadership. They're excited. They begin the work. Uh, they actually lay the foundation of the temple. So they return there in 538 BC. And they were, they, so for two years, they're, they're doing the rebuilding of the temple starts. They get the foundation laid and then they quit. There's opposition begins to rise. Life is difficult. The city's fallen. They actually start working on other things. Their Samaritan neighbors are not happy about it and threaten them. And so they basically leave the temple then in its state of ruin and they get about their own business. Well, for 16 years, this continues. And God sends the prophet Haggai. And Haggai comes to the nation, having 16 years, just watched the temple lay in ruins, not finishing the work God had called them to do. And he calls them and he comes with a simple message. In fact, he preaches four messages in a span of 15 weeks. You got to think, you got Jeremiah the weeping prophet going for 60 years of ministry. Nobody's repenting. You've got Ezekiel prophesying, of, and, they, and they don't repent. They go to destruction. They finally come out. Uh, God has promised. They now come to uh, and being restored to the land, and yet they start and they quit. Now, wouldn't you like that assignment? Go to this group of people who have been very hardened in their sin. I've been very content to do other things and go call them to repentance. And so Haggai comes to this people with a message from the Lord, and I would title it simply, Consider Your Ways, taking from the two different times that Haggai brings this same message to them. So there's, Consider Your Ways, Haggai 1.5, and then again in 1.7, as he calls on them to stop and consider. So let's look at the text in the first four verses. And he's really calling them to, to just stop and evaluate. 
And as he, he, he speaks into this issue, he's really getting into why did they stop in the first place? What is it they valued more than serving God? Why, what are they afraid of? What are your fears? We've seen how powerful fear can be to manipulate an entire world. Fear is a powerful motivator, and if people can find what you're afraid of or get you to be afraid, they can create all kinds of responses using fear. The world is not afraid. The devil uses fear all the time. So what is it we're fearing? What is it that's actually uh, that's dictating how we respond to the circumstance of life? And Haggai comes to confront a people who've been leaving the work of God for 16 years. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet and said, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled housing while this house lies in ruin? I love the way the language comes because he begins by saying the word of the Lord came. And that sounds a little unusual to us. And maybe one of the things that's for us is difficult is that we have access to the word of God. In fact, uh, you know, we probably many of us just digitally, we have it with us all the time. We're so used to the ready availability of the word of God. Well, that wasn't the case for the Old Testament saint. But here's the word of God coming with power, with authority, being there, being a message delivered from God. And the question for, for me and you that really is, how much of a privilege do we really think it is to enter into church, into the place where God has agreed to meet, where his word will be opened up, and he's promised to meet with us? That God is going to send forth his word. And it is being sent to minister to us in the midst of our lives, in the midst of our circumstance. In fact, I would argue it calls on us to consider our ways. It calls on us to consider our approach and how we actually approach the reception of the Word of God and to understand that, that while the Word is readily accessible to us, the significance of the Word, the application of the Word, the living of the Word actually requires a ministry of the Spirit to us. That do we actually, I mean, there was a time in American culture, and I do appreciate the people who, say, who ask, you know, have you prayed for your pastor on Saturday night? Have you prayed for your missionaries? Are you praying for your service? I think one book I was recently reading on the, on the local church says probably one of the most neglected things to pray for is the local church. And what the author meant by that is not that we don't pray for one another because the church is God's people. We do that, but we don't pray much about the mission. We don't pray much about Lord, today, maybe somebody that we've invited, somebody we're witnessing to will come, somebody in the service who doesn't know the Lord will be here, and their ears will be opened, and they will come to repent in faith. Or, Lord, we're entering your presence as needy people. We need to hear from you. You know, I I dare say we probably all have really sharp elbows. What do I mean by that? We're all really good at saying, man, that's a message so-and-so needed to hear. I hope they got it. I hope they heard, maybe God will use that in their life, but we don't do so well as actually preparing our hearts before we come in on Sunday saying, Lord, I'm still a needy sinner. And there's things in my life that are not yet right with you, nor am I necessarily spending my life on all the right things. God, speak to my heart when I enter your presence tomorrow. We come to church, but do we actually expect to meet with God? Do we expect to hear from God? 
Is that how we enter? The word of the Lord came as an incredible privilege. Now the question is, are the people going to receive it for as it is, the word of the Lord, what will happen? And he comes in again with that language the Lord of hosts has spoken and he's confronting this irony. They laid down the work of God because they were afraid of people. Their circumstances became hard. Their, their neighbors were confronting them and they didn't want the temple to go forward and they're getting all this pressure and so the culture around them was putting pressure on them to stop the work and they obliged as now more afraid of people than they are the one who is Lord of hosts. So who do you fear? Whose acceptance do you actually want? What keeps you from engaging in the work of God? What keeps us from, even as Pastor prayed earlier, do we even regularly pray, Lord, open doors and give me boldness? Or do we just do this, Lord, give Pastor open doors and give him boldness to speak to somebody this week? Well, even if we did that much, I think we'd, at least we'd be happy to some degree. You know, give those in professional ministry, those are the guys. No, 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 God wants you He actually called you out of darkness to be a witness and he wants us to pray that way and pray expectantly. Do we? Do we remember who we're serving, the one who is Lord of hosts? And then there's obviously the confrontation. You notice his wording, he said, this people. It's a stinging rebuke. They're supposed to be God's people, but they're not living that way. And here's the message to God's people, this people. So the Lord is speaking through his prophet to his people and he's saying, you are not living like you actually belong to me. You are not living under the authority of the one who is Lord of hosts with a proper fear and reverence of him. You actually have more concern for the neighbor around you than you do the God whom you say you worship. This people. You see the people's excuse. We all have them. Their excuse is the time has not come that the Lord's house. Now notice what they're not saying. They're not saying we're not going to do it. They're not saying, Lord, we're hardened in rebellion. We don't care. What are they saying? They're just simply saying it's not convenient right now. There's too many obstacles. There's other priorities right now. There's other things we are doing, but we're, we'll get to it. Now, if you've had this experience, I'm not picking on you, and I'm not asking you to volunteer example, but if you've had the red and blue lights flashing behind you on the highway or anywhere else where you were being beckoned, arrested, really, to pull over, and you decided it was not convenient, you would just keep going. <laughs> it won't work out very well. I had the occasion as a teenager pulling out uh, out of a place where I basically uh, sprayed gravel all over everything. Little did I recognize there was a police officer sitting in the parking lot, only he wasn't in his car. So I took off out, headed back to my house, and the next thing I got greeted with was by a police officer coming from the other way, who was told basically someone was running from the police, which wasn't true. The police officer's car didn't start, so he called another car. So a car came from another direction and I'm driving in one lane and the first time this ever happened to me, the police officer pulled in my lane and I'm like, what is he doing? Well, apparently he must want me to stop. I got the message. I pull over to be greeted by the guy in the passenger seat with a shotgun out his window aiming at two teenagers in the car going, what did we do? How did we do this? 
And they pulled us over because we decided, we were, while it wasn't the case, it wasn't, the guy wasn't, the guy, the other guy showed up like two minutes later. And then he, so they've got us over the car. They're searching my car. They've got a spread eagle. They don't know why they stopped us. They think we're running from the other guy. So we're, and then the other guy pulls up and says, oh no, let him go. And the guys look at him like, what? And then he gives me back and he gives me a five minute chewing out. Anyway, so all of that good to say that I didn't actually go, I'm not pulling over. I'm just going to go. But that's how I got treated. It wasn't the spike strips. It was a car with a shotgun. So you want to try that out with the police? It probably is not going to go well. But here's the point. I say all of that because we recognize the folly of it, or perhaps you know somebody who did that. But how often do we do that to the Lord? How often we know the right thing to do and we say, ah, not now. It's not convenient now. Remember when the Lord was spurred in our heart about ministry and I did not grow up in a Christian home, got saved my junior year of college. God was burdened my heart about ministry and I thought, well, if the Lord knew what he was doing, <laughs> he would have had me go, grow up in a Christian home. I would have went to Bible college. I would have done all those things. The Lord can't be calling me to, to ministry. It has to be. No, this isn't what God's doing. That worked for about a, maybe nine months, maybe a year. Until I finally had to say, Lord, this isn't my life, it's yours. You bought it. It belongs to you. If that's what you'd have me to do, then I'll just serve you wherever you send. How often do we say it's not convenient? How often do we spend our life, and it gets, it's really worse than spending it on things that don't matter. It's actually squandering the opportunities God's given. It's saying really to people then observing that God isn't really worth the effort. There's something more pressing than serving the Lord. He calls on them to consider their ways, to stop, to evaluate. In many ways, when we come to the Lord's table, aren't we called to do that regularly? Do this in remembrance of me? Examine yourself before you partake? Or to stop and consider where our priorities are and what are we actually investing in? We come from looking at the priorities, stop and look at the priorities, to, oh, sorry. So, as you look and examine the priorities themselves, uh, he is mentioning what they actually have time to do. They are spending their time on their own houses. They're spending their time on the finishing what they have. I mean, their own paneled houses. So they've had time, they've had resources to, to do that, but they haven't engaged in the work of God. And so we come then, and we're really going to jump then to, to this on the futility, the result. Um, and before we do, I just, I had a definition. I don't think, I'm sorry, back up, I should have said, yeah, I have a definition. This is a definition through time that I have worked on, whether it's helpful or not, you can decide. But I do think we live out of a sense of identity, the people of, of Israel were, but they were failing to consider the Lord as the Lord of hosts and then living under that authority but here's what we've been called to do is be devoted followers of Christ. If we're disciples, if we know the Lord, we're disciples, learners, followers. But we are to be called fully devoted, which is the call to holiness, is a call to devotion. Be loyal followers of Christ, eager to learn God's words and to live God's way. That is what we're called to be uh, as we serve Christ, as we examine, as we consider our own ways is that really true? Are we living out that reality? 
And then we need to see the result, what happens. And this is where, again, what happened to Israel is been given to us as an example. We're to learn. You know, one of my favorite t-shirts is nobody's useless. At least you can be a, a bad example. So there's good news. You can at least be a bad example in life. So at least, minimally, we can. But here's the, the, I mean, we are examples whether we like it or not. Whether we're good or bad is going to be debated. And there's somebody following your example, whether that, that, that should scare you to some degree, that people are actually looking at your example as some kind of model to be followed. But what happens when we actually forsake biblical priorities in our life, what begins to happen, well, it happened to Israel, and I would argue it happens to you. It is that we begin to experience the futility of a lot of work and no real accomplishment. And this is what was going on for 16 years. I mean, you'd think you'd get the message, right? But look what he says is happening. You so much, bring in little. They're out working. They're working the fields. They're sowing. They're working hard, but not much is coming from it. You eat, but you don't have enough. It's like you're just never full. You drink, you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but you're never warm. He who earns wages or his ways put it in a bag with holes in it. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when it, you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord. And simply he's just bringing forth this reality that, that God does not reward unfaithlessness in the lives of his people. Disobedience doesn't bring profit. Okay, sin is always going to bring destruction. We are either going to live and we're going to labor for the Lord, walking in the Spirit, unsubmission to the Spirit's leadership, engage in the work of God, bearing forth the fruit of God's work in our life, or we're not. And when we stop engaging in the priorities of God, we actually yield to our flesh. And here's the absolute promise from God. Your flesh and sowing to that will always bring a level of destruction. They've been working for 16 years on the wrong priorities. They left aside the work of God. They've left aside what God gave them to do. Worship was something not ultimately important to them. The temple was central to their worship. They've left it in ruins. And that very essence of worship is to enter God's presence to do His will. I enter God's presence to hear from Him, to be equipped by Him, to serve Him, to go forth to do His will, not my own. They've left that aside. They've engaged in their own activities. They're completing their own houses. They've got enough time and energy and money, whatever it is, to invest in something, but it is not the work of God. And as a result of that bad investment, as a result of actually not living by faith, they've done a lot of work, and all they've seen is little outcome. It's one of those things. You can work as hard as you want, as hard as the world will promise you. If you're just putting hard work and effort, you're going to do all this, you can accomplish great things. Don't count on it. You can do all the right effort, put all the effort in, but you cannot control the outcome. There's someone who does. And God is controlling the outcomes, and the outcomes are not things that they're excited about. But for 16 years, they've been blinded to their own sin. God has been chastening the people. He's been doing exactly what he promised in the Old Testament. If you're not going to walk with me, you're not going to trust me, you're not going to obey me, you will experience the curses that come from living a life outside of the will of God. And they begin experiencing that futility, so God's chastening hand is upon them. You would think you'd get it the first time, but we don't. 
We're all like that. We're slow of heart. We're quick to defend our ways. We think we've got a right to decide how to spend our time. And we want to defend all the effort we're giving while we're experiencing this utter futility of our effort and not even seeing the hand of God. They were missing it. The question is, is are we? I mean, there's droughts. This is what we see. There are heavens above that withheld the dew. The earth withholds its fruit. I've called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, and the new wine, the oil, whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, on the labor of your hands. So God has been chastening and bringing forth the fruits of chastisement just as his word promises, and they're missing it. The question is, what about us? We know what we sow, we're going to reap. You know, if you want corn, don't plant beans. If you want to have corn, you just don't go plant a whole set of beans. And if you do go plant beans, you're going to have to work for a while to get rid of the beans before the corn comes in. You're going to have to plant a new crop. If we want the blessings of the Lord, then we have to sow obedience to the Lord. Or the beans of that disobedience just keeps showing up. The fruit of that wrong priorities will keep showing up. So where's God brought forth that futility? Where is it showing up in our own life? The scriptures are pretty clear. The Lord, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. No chastening is joyful. But never will. In fact, he says, but painful. In the midst of their disobedience, they were experiencing the pain of their disobedience, but yet they were still remaining spiritually blind to it. And God is sending the prophet Haggai and sends them to confront. And so where does that futility, I think one of the places probably now, and in, in, it used to be, we could say things like, you know, just, and it's to some degree true, if you don't trace where you spend your money, you're spending your money in places you didn't intend. I used to be a business manager at church, and one of my jobs as a business manager because uh, I actually so, you know, I actually had the responsibility to review all our employees because we had a Christian school and a preschool, and I reviewed all the employees to actually see if they were giving. And then I had meetings with people about it. Do you actually give? And I would hear all the reasons. I mean, they don't make much money. They're in Christian education. They had this, they had that. All the reasons and what I observed constantly throughout life. If you won't make that a priority in your life, you will spend that money elsewhere in futility. Meaning the car is going to break. The house is going to need something. Something else is going to happen. Everything you think you're saving for to get to the time you could actually afford to trust the Lord and give won't come because there's going to be the next bill, the next unexpected expense. You'll spend it in futility or in debt and chasing debtors, chasing credit card debt. You'll spend it somewhere with no joy because God will not be mocked and he will not be robbed. You can freely choose that God loves cheerful givers. I'm not giving in a bartering sense. Boy, I hope if I give this, God's going to give me back. You know, we could do the whole best life now and let's get those multiple blessings. If you just do that seed of faith, it's going to multiply. We can just lie to people, manipulate them, tell them to give a lot of money and watch them go broke while you get rich. That's a good thing to do. No, not is. It's done. And because that's done, here's the thing. When we hear appeal to give, we think, oh, they just want more money. No, actually, God's called you to invest in what's important, which means ministry is important. Do you invest? Because it's something you'll do later. 
Do you know if you won't actually give with what little you may or may not have at this moment, God could bless you in abundance and not, it's not going to change that. I've watched it happen so many times in people's lives. I think maybe the biggest lie today that is actually not finance, but time. Everybody's so busy. Talk to anybody, they're busy. Somebody asked me this week, how's things going? I'm like, yeah, it's been crazy busy recently. It has. One of the challenges I constantly have to come back and ask myself is, I mean, I'm in ministry full time and there's always an endless thing to do in ministry. There's always more work to be done and you find yourself chasing all these things, but I have to stop and ask, Lord, am I chasing the right things? Am I actually investing in the right things and the right people? Am I actually advancing the cause or am I just busy doing the things I'm most comfortable doing? Because at the end of the day, I'm going to give an account to the Lord on how I've spent the life he's given me. I want to spend it well. I want, to get, I want to present a life to the Lord spent well. And so I constantly have to look in the busyness of life and the things I'm spending. Am I spending it on the right things? Does this genuinely please the Lord? Because I, like Israel, am called to evaluate, to consider, to stop. Stop and consider what it is. Where, where is this showing up in my own life, in my examination? And I am missed to see, and I often ask this, and I did as a pastor, when's the last time you've been crushed by your sin? When's the last time God smote your heart and you were before the Lord saying, Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. If it's been so long you can't remember, then sometimes I wonder how serious we take this admonition. Because we're still sinners, struggling to live by faith and struggling to engage in what matters. Maybe it's been 16 years for you. I don't know. Maybe it's been two. But are we actually evaluating what we're doing to be pleasing to the Lord? Are we simply evaluating by the people around us? Because I can look to the Christian culture around me and say, well, I'm doing more than they are. I'm good. Well, maybe they're doing the wrong things. I can look to the pagan world around me and say, well, I'm certainly more spiritual than that. I'd hope so. It's not saying much. Or do I actually look to Christ, the author and finisher of my faith, and say, Lord, I'm hopelessly broken. And I am far from being Christ-like. But praise the Lord, you're gracious, but you're not finished. And the work you're doing continue. And while sometimes it's joyously painful to be chastened by the Lord, it produces the peaceable fruits of righteousness. When's the last time? Always gives a question of how do we evaluate. And there's just certain phrases that have helped me and this really gets into principles. And I do think uh, these principles are just four quick principles. I'm just going to throw up here. How do I evaluate life? Well, one, I'm to love God supremely, first and great command. So that means where's my affections? And it should then flow out in different aspects, which I'm not going to spend time on this. But this is how I evaluate life. It's how I evaluate ministry. It's how I evaluate what am I doing? Am I loving God first? And does it show up in my priorities? Am I loving others sacrificially? Am I loving like Christ? Because when I love like Christ, then the world actually knows I am of Christ. 
That witness has credibility. And so as you open, I pray for doors. So we are to, to engage in loving others and that will look like being involved in their spiritual mentoring and seeing them grow as well as others seeing you grow. Am I serving? Am I just doing it? But is there a fervency about it? Is there an intentionality about it? Is there an eagerness about it? Or is it just is it, is it as it's convenient? Are we more like the people in the Haggai? Lord, I know what I'm supposed to do, but right now it's just not convenient. Things are too busy. There's too many other things on my plate. And are we sharing Christ? Is there a fearlessness about it? Or are we just constrained by the culture around us that we're afraid to open our mouths and actually engage in the fruitful ministry of sharing the gospel with others? And those just help me to consider, evaluate my ways and look at the priorities. But here's where he comes and then calls them to repentance. Okay, God has put his finger down and he's put his finger down in their life. Look, 16 years, they couldn't avoid that. I mean, they can't deny it. I mean, 16 years you've been back in the land. God's work lies in ruins. Your houses are being finished. You're not doing what God's called you to do. Okay, there's no real argument here. And so are they going to repent? That's the question. Are they going to repent? Or are they going to continue to excuse their disobedience? This has been going on a long time. Is this pattern going to break? And so there's a call to repentance, which again, repentance like faith is a gift of God. And they now are called, and they're called to go up to the hills because repentance calls for not just a change of mind, not just a change of, of attitude. It actually calls for a change of life and direction. It wasn't going to be enough to say, Lord, you're right. We've let it be in ruins for 16 years. We'll all come forward to the invitation and pray and say, Thank you, Lord, we shouldn't have done that. Amen. We'll hopefully do better. And we continue letting the temple lie in ruins. There'll be no repentance. So go up to the hills, bring the wood, bring the, build the house. Note what it says, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Here's what God wants in your life. To take pleasure in it. Isn't it amazing that God takes pleasure in rescuing sinners like us and, help, and letting us serve him? Giving us meaningful work to do that actually honors him, that shows to the world around you what God is worth. And it's by your investment in the work of God, by your sacrifice, by your service, by your engagement, as you engage with, with loving God with a whole heart, you actually begin showing to the world that God is worth it. And that's what he calls on them to do. To go. They've been giving the world around them, they gave the Samaritans a very small view of who their God was. Just think about it. This Persian king comes to power, defeated Babylon, and God told them 150 years before, he's going to let you go back. And it happens just like God said. Now they're called to build the temple and he gives them provisions. I mean, think of all the provisions given to them. Everything they need has been provided. And yet they get a little opposition in how quick they quit. What does it take? There's some tremendous encouragement in the text that when they repent and actually do the work that God's given them to do, God will be pleased. He'll be honored. He'll be glorified. And so as we begin to engage and do the work of God, to engage in what God has given us to do. In fact, Paul tells us we make it our aim, our ambition. This is the centerpiece of life. What do we aim for? What are we gold? That it would be well-pleasing to him, to Christ. That is to be our ambition. This is now possible. They repent. They begin to do the work of 
God and God will be pleased. And so the time has come and the time has called them to repent and actually embrace the right priorities and do the work God's given them to do. It's time to live by faith and the obedience that really flows forth from faith. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Notice the shift. They weren't fearing the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now they are. They're actually restored to living by faith. I take that phrase, the fear of the Lord, the beginning of knowledge, wisdom, that it is an expression of what it means to live by faith. For an Old Testament saint, you lived in the fear of the Lord. You lived hating, what God, to, hating to do what God hates. You lived loving to do what God loves. And so we are to fear the Lord. Now they've shifted. They've actually begun to live in fear of the Lord, but then what happens? They obey. Shouldn't be hard to follow. Pastor Greg prayed that we would actually live out the reality of our love for Christ. Well, Jesus is pretty plain, isn't he? If you love me, you will sometimes every now and then when you feel like it, and it's convenient, keep my commandments. It's that convenient commodity, because after all, we're just servants, and servants serve at their own convenience, and right now it's convenient to serve in the church, and it doesn't take a whole lot of work, so we can do that. So we'll every now and then make it, a, make it an issue, and we serve Christ, we feel good about it, and we say we're real spiritual. Or do we actually live out the reality that we're slaves of Christ, that we actually belong to Him, my body is not my own, and all that I'm to do is actually give the right opinion about God, and what I am doing is giving people an impression about who my God is, and if He's really great, or if He's just subservient. Does He exist to please me and give me what I want, or do I actually exist to find my pleasure in serving Him because He's the one in control and this is His world going to work His way? Is that who I am? And we begin to live in the fear of the Lord, and then as we draw this conclusion, there's just tremendous encouragement. We're not Israel, so we're not under the covenant curse and the covenant blessing. But we have been told very clearly that if we will sow to our flesh, we will only reap the destruction that comes from sin. And if we will sow to the Spirit, we begin to reap the very fruits of the Spirit. That's a promise from God. And so you see then as the final, this closing message that comes to them at the end of chapter 1. So they've been rebuked, they repent, they begin to engage. And now note, here's, here's the encouraging message. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people. I am with you, says the Lord. What more do you want? I'm with you, says the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year. God changed everything. Repentance and faith. How we come to Christ, how we live for Christ. Israel was not walking in faith. They were fearing everything else than the Lord of hosts. God sends his prophet. He opens their heart. They receive the message. He stirred them. 
reminded in Acts 4, I'm reminded so many places. I think of maybe Timothy, Paul telling Timothy, stir, stir up, fan the flame of the calling of God in your life. In chapter 4, after the, the disciples are, are beaten and threatened, they go back and pray, and God shook them. And they left that prayer meeting shaken for the Lord and went right back out with boldness proclaiming. I don't know about you, but I long for God to shake his people. There's so much lethargy among the people of God, so much laissez-faire as far as service, devotion, of whole genuine commitment to holiness. There's so little passion to take the gospel to the lost. That should not be okay for us. It should not be okay. We should stop, consider our ways, and ask the Lord, are we really investing in what pleases you? And if we're not, Lord, shake us, stir us, stir the church in the United States of America, really across the world, to be passionate about the gospel and passionate to stand for you. And then, Lord, send us forth as laborers in your harvest field. Lord, help us to spend our life. We're spending it. Are we spending it well? My spending it on the things that actually don't matter, that will bring the chastening hand of God so life is filled with futility. I'm so busy, I can't see my way of ever stopping and actually doing something meaningful because I'm just chasing my tail. It's a great way to spend your life. Are we actually investing in what matters? The advancement of the gospel through the local church. You know what God has promised to build? His church. God has promised to build His church. You know what God has promised? I was just confronted by this this morning. The Lord said, ask anything in my name and I'll do it. That is not your blanket to ask everything you want in the world, tack Jesus' name on the end of it. What it is, it's a call to align yourself to those things that actually are like Jesus Christ that he invested in. To know and discern what he actually has called you to do and pray, Lord, help me to do that. And he will do it. Promise from the Lord of hosts. It's not in our strength. It's not in our might. But aren't you glad he's promised? In fact, in Ephesians 3, as Paul tells us to pray for one another, to be strengthened in our inner man, he reminds us that God is prepared to do more than we've ever asked or we've ever thought. God does not lack in power. And he's calling you and I to believe he is the Lord of hosts. Now consider your ways. Set your priorities right and repent from the wrong priorities to then go and engage with the fear of God keeping his commands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, your kindness. Thank you for your word, its authority. I do pray, Lord, you'll help us to recognize that we are spending. We're stewards in this life, entrusted with the gospel, entrusted with so much time that we don't really know what that is. But we do know each morning mercies are new, and we can come to a throne filled with grace and ask for the help we need. And Lord, you'll grant it. We can come and ask for the boldness we need, and you will grant it. We can come and ask for doors to be open, and you will grant it. And so, Lord, we can come 
and come in repentant faith, crushed for the wrong priorities. We can have our eyes open to see the futility of spending our life on things that don't matter. And recognizing in all that effort that we put, nothing is really coming because our heart's not right with you. Lord, help us to see that futility where it is. To be like Israel was now under Haggai's ministry, repentant, broken, but then encouraged and shaken. Lord, stir us. Stir us with a greater zeal for your glory, greater zeal for the gospel, greater compassion for the lost. And then, Lord, send us out to labor together, believing that you will do more than we've asked or thought. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.